All right. Well, a couple weeks ago, we started a new series called Destroyers of the Gods. And it's a reference to a story that took place in the middle of the second century. Polycarp was a Christian who was martyred for confessing his faith in Christ. He would not um, relent, and even upon threats and uh, pleading, because he was 86 years old, the governor of the city was pleading with him to recant, and he would not, because he said, how can I deny the king who saved me, who's been leading me and guiding me, and I'm not going to deny him towards the end of my life. And the people that um, gathered around in the amphitheater began to chant, he is the destroyer of our gods, bring in the lions. And so we get that title from that story, that the Christians in the second century were perceived as destroyers of the Roman gods. And from that story, I wanted to spend a few weeks together understanding what was it like to be a Christian in the first, second, and third century. The early Christians, the first Christians, when Christianity wasn't popular. When Christianity wasn't fully organized yet. When it wasn't safe to be a Christian. When it was only the minority of the population. We didn't have millions, and some claim even today, you know, dozens or hundreds of millions of Christians. What was it like to be a Christian in an era when the Romans could not distinguish between a Christian and a Jewish individual? Because at that point, you had about 24 different splinter groups from Judaism constantly arguing about who the Messiah is and constantly arguing about the application and interpretation of the Old Testament law. And so the Romans perceived Christians as just one of those groups that are arguing about their Messiah. It wasn't until the end of the 4th century, 380, AD 380, when an edict came from the emperor Theodosius I, making Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire. But until that point, Christianity was still new. It was in its infantile stage. And yet, people were becoming Christians at a very rapid rate. It was Christians who began to adopt some of the terminology that they were familiar with as part of the Roman culture, the Greek world that they were living in. And so they began to adopt the vocabulary that they were familiar with and redefining it and appropriating it for themselves. For example, kurios or the word Lord. In the New Testament, the word Lord is really the word kurios. From a Christian point of view, that means he is the sovereign one. He is over everything. But they came out of a culture where the emperor was lord. And so for them, allegiance had to shift from the emperor, who did ultimately have sovereignty over life and death, to now an an invisible lord, Jesus Christ. We talked about that in Ephesus where the book of Ephesians took place and where the church existed in a very pagan world. Hundreds of different gods were worshipped in the city of Ephesus. You have a story in Acts 19 talking about that, where they claimed that the goddess Artemis was Lord. She was the Lord of that city, and yet Christians began to say, no, Jesus is Lord. And chaos ensued because of that. One of the most prevalent Conflicts that took place was over the title Son of God. Because the emperor, the very first emperor, his name was Octavian, when he became the emperor, 
he declared his adoptive uncle to be God upon his death. And so thereby, immediately, he became son of God. And he put that on coins. He put that on temples. He put that all over the place on graffiti. So people would understand the propaganda coming from his office and from his uh, imperial throne that he was the son of God. And then you open up the gospel of Mark. And the very first verse says that Jesus is the son of God. And come to the end of the story in the gospel of Mark. And the very first person after the crucifixion who declares Jesus, not the emperor, to be the son of God is a Roman centurion. The irony of that is that somebody who should have been most loyal to the emperor as the son of God has now shifted his allegiance to Jesus, the son of God, as Jesus was dying on the cross. And then the Christians begin to talk about themselves as the ecclesia, as the church, as a community. Those who have been called out of the world and now they've formed a new organization and a new group that would provide fellowship for those who would join. They just adopted a term that meant a gathering. A general term that meant a gathering of animals, a gathering of politicians, a gathering of citizens, a gathering of religious individuals. But they adopted it for themselves. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, he's using that term for the very first time in Christian history to create a new organism, a new community, a new congregation that would be called the church henceforward. This was the Christian experience in the very beginning as you open the book of Acts, especially in the early chapters and as you move from the Gospels to the first churches. And the community that they began to form, we talked about this two weeks ago, was an ethnically diverse community. You see, back in the day, you were expected to be loyal to the gods of your family. You grew up praying to them, worshiping them, offering to them. There were edicts to that effect. And so for you as an individual, it's kind of like today in Islam. If you convert from Islam to Christianity, you're abandoning not just a God, you're abandoning your whole tradition, your family, everything that you know with your nation. So for Christians to come in and say that our God is above all the nations, he's above all people groups. Acts 17 says that God is the father of all people He's not tied to the Jews, he's not tied to the Gentiles, he's not tied to the Greek or the barbarians or Scythians or anybody else. He's the God of all. The Christians brought that idea for the very first time into the Roman world. And if you even think about Judaism, because you could say, well, what about the Old Testament? Yahweh says that he's the God of all, that's true. But even there, the Romans, when they thought about the Jewish people in their empire, they thought of them as Yahweh belongs to the Jews. That's it. It is an ethnic God. That's how I understood it. And that was the common understanding of the day. And yet Christians show up. And in Colossians 3.11, Paul writes, In Christ there is no Greek and Jew. In other words, there's no ethnic diversity in that regard. Everybody's equal. There's no barbarian, no Scythian. There's no slave or free. In other words, there's social equality. But Christ is all and in all. And then you go to Galatians 3.28. Again, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There is no male and female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. In other words, there are physical differences between people, for sure. But when you come to the cross, when you come to the church, and you become a member of the church, 
Nobody is superior to the other person. There is no gender superiority. There is no ethical superiority. There is no social superiority. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh. In other words, when you interact with another Christian, you're not judging that individual based on what they look like, what country they came from, what language they speak, what gender they are. We don't recognize any man according to the flesh, Paul says. We evangelize all and we fellowship with all ethnicities. By application, what that means is that our entire identity has been redefined. As a Christian, you don't prioritize your people group, your heritage, your language, where you came from, your citizenship, whatever country that may belong to, above your identity in Christ. Our identity now lies in Christ Jesus, which is what gives us equality in the church. But you have to understand that this is a radically new way of living life and thinking about yourself and about the people that you interact with. For the very first time, this was introduced by the Christians into the Roman Empire. So within the church, there was ethnic diversity and equality in that. Nobody was superior. But there was also socioeconomic diversity. Christians came from all different ethnicities, and they came from all different social classes. Until about 1950s, 1960s, so say 60, 70 years ago, people that studied early Christianity, scholars, thought that early Christians all came from the poor class of the society. It was the poor, the slaves, and the women. In other words... In a, in, a, in a Roman context of hierarchy, social hierarchy, it was the lowest of the low who were attracted to Christianity for the reasons I just mentioned. Because all of a sudden, they, they could be elevated. They could actually have some meaning and identity and value, unlike in the Roman world. And so scholars concluded that, yeah, it was kind of the worst of the worst, the dregs of the society that were attracted to Christianity until... In the 1950s, 1960s, the scholars began to look at more original writings from early Christians, 2nd century, 3rd century, and beyond. And they realized that Christians came from all levels of social classes. You had Christians who were senators. You had Christians who were governors. You had Christians who were attorneys. Christians who were businessmen, who were financiers, who were bankers. And so they began to re- change their understanding of early Christianity, redefine their conclusions by saying it wasn't only the poor that were drawn to Christ, it was everybody. In fact, one of the early church fathers says this about the Romans criticizing Christians and being afraid that Christianity is now spreading into all levels of society. They can't contain it. This is what he wrote. The outcry by the Romans is that the state, the Roman Empire, is filled with Christians. That they are in the fields, in the citadels, in the islands. They make lamentation as for some calamity. That both sexes, every age and condition, every high rank are passing over to the profession of the Christian faith. So this is what the Romans began to fear. That all of a sudden... 
Christians are spreading too rapidly into too many sectors of society. Now, we see some of that even in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 gives us a story of Jesus' ministry. And it talks about the people that supported his mission. And so in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, this is what Luke writes. It happened that soon afterward, Jesus was going around from one city and village to another, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's manager, this is King Herod, and Susanna, and many others who were ministering to them from their professions. The first time in the Gospels that it talks about somebody financing the ministry of Jesus and the 12 disciples, it gives credit to the women who came from wealthy homes, one of whom was married to the manager in King Herod's palace. And they began to use that money to fund the advancement of the gospel. You think of Barnabas in Acts chapter 5, who was so wealthy that he decided to sell all that he had and then give it to the apostles to distribute to the church. In Acts 16, verse 14, you meet a woman named Lydia. And it says that she was a seller of purple fabrics. And sometimes you read that and you skip over it. That's great. What does that mean? It means that she was an entrepreneur. She would go east and find those fabrics and bring them back to the Roman Empire and create a business, an international business. That's what she was. And she had a household, it says later in the same chapter. In other words, she was married with kids, but she was a successful businesswoman. And somebody who traded in purple fabrics was actually trading in the finest fabrics in that day. And she was the person who got saved first in Philippi, which is the first European church in Christian history. And most likely, she was the first one to host the church. She opened up her house for the very first church in Europe. In Acts 17, verse 4, it says that people were getting saved, and some of them were leading women in Thessalonica. So now the gospel goes up to the leading women, those who are either um, holding some kind of high position in the government or jobs or businesses, but they had a reputation. It doesn't say they were married to important men. It just says that they themselves were leading women. And the gospel was changing those hearts and those lives. In Romans 16, 23, we meet Erastus, who was the city treasurer. And in the city of Rome, you can imagine a, the significance to be a city treasurer in the capital of the Roman Empire. The greatest and the biggest and the most successful empire in human history up to that point. A city of one million people. That is a significant position. Whoever is in charge of all the finances in Los Angeles, that's an important person. We're talking about Erastus, a Christian. Gaius, the same verse in chapter 16 of Romans. He was so wealthy that he hosted the whole church in his house. He must have had a mansion. And so he allowed people to come regularly and worship in this place. Luke was a physician. 
Again, a very prominent and important and valued profession. Colossians 4.14 says that. He was also very educated. We know that from his writing style of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And then in Philippians 4.22, when Paul closes that letter, he says, all the saints greet you, writing to the Philippians, because they sent him some money to support him while he was in prison in Rome, especially those of Caesar's household. Did you get that? People living, part of the imperial family, Biden's kids, <laughs> got saved, and they're in touch with Paul, and they're greeting the saints in Philippi that they've never met. That's what we're talking about. The gospel wasn't limited to the poor, to those who, from the Roman point of view, didn't matter in society. No, it actually made its way into the imperial palace. So now you understand Tertullian's quote. There is an outcry, there's a lamentation among the Romans that the gospel is spreading too fast and too wide into all sectors of society. And the Christian ethic among all these individuals wasn't to segregate. Wasn't to say, well, God blessed me, I have my mansion I hope God blesses you as well one day. Be warm and be filled. No. Acts 2, the beginning of the church, says they began to share everything. And the Barnabas sets the example in chapter 5 of Acts. In other words, the Christian ethic, in that very distinct and different environment from the rest of the Roman Empire, this socioeconomically diverse environment, was to share Literally, it says in Acts 2, they had all things in common. They began to sell their property and possessions, and they began to share them with all as anybody had need. This was the Christian way of living in that community. And this stood out. Because as we go back to the idea of the church, ecclesia is the term in the Greek. There are questions that scholars have about why the Christians adopted that term. Why not another term? There were about a dozen different terms they could have picked up and adopted for themselves. But they chose this term. You see, in the Roman Empire, there were many associations, many clubs. They are called collegia, plurally. Sounds like college. Collegium, singular in Latin, collegia, plural. That's where we get the word college from. These are little clubs, associations of people that could not make it in the true corporate ladder experience in the Roman world. It was called the cursus honorum, the pursuit of honor. Cursus honorum, the course of honor, in other words. Kind of like being in, on the corporate, in the corporate world here now and trying to climb the ladder, the corporate ladder. That would be the equivalent. Now, not anybody could become a senator. Not anybody could become a governor. You had to be born into certain positions, into a certain family, and then that family set you into a path of success. So the people that couldn't get there in a normal social system, they created these clubs. And these clubs were socially and fiscally homogenous. In other words, you kind of grouped with the people who were of your equal social class. The reason for that it's because if you brought somebody in who was below you socially, they would drag you down and ruin your reputation. And so you kind of stayed with your peers. That was the norm. And these clubs, 
were distinct in the deities that they worshipped and in the pursuits that they had. So, we meet clubs that are called the burial clubs, the burial collegia. What this means is that people, oftentimes who were single, and they had no family members to bury them, they would join this club in order to pay some dues on a regular basis. So when they died, somebody would actually bury them. And so they would buy this communal tomb. And so when you'd passed away, the group would come in afterwards and kind of have this ceremony for you and then uh, bury you in this communal tomb. That was the norm. The reason that people talk about this as an option for Christianity is because when you get into 3rd and 4th century, Christians called themselves with those terms. But here's what else it means. It also means that Christians, as they tried to find an identity, they still weren't recognized as a religion. They're still looking for something to grasp onto in the social environment. They still weren't recognized as an official Roman religion. There were other types of clubs called the professional clubs. You meet some of those individuals in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul just healed a young woman who was helping these merchants, businessmen, sell little statues of Artemis. If you've ever been to Europe and you go to some monuments, some you know, important place like the Colosseum or the Eiffel Tower, you'll see different businesses selling little trinkets, you know, little Eiffel Tower, little Colosseum, and so on. That's exactly what's happening in Acts 19. These businessmen are selling little statues of Artemis, the goddess. And this young woman is helping them sell. All of a sudden, Paul heals her, and she's no longer helping them. They get upset because their business is in jeopardy. And so they begin to chant, in unison, great is the Artemis of Ephesus. They just keep doing this over and over and over. You see that in verse 34. Then the city clerk in verse 35 says, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and don't do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius, one of these businessmen, one of these merchants, and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful meeting. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no cause for which we can give as an account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the meeting. So the people, the businessmen, the merchants, who were organized in this collegia of businessmen, they created a riot to put pressure on the city clerk to punish Paul and his associates for disrupting their business. This would be one of those groups. They had influence, they had power, they had leverage. Thankfully, the city clerk had enough wisdom and discretion to disperse the crowd and not create a bigger problem. That's one of those types of groups where Christians could rally around a god. These people rallied around Artemis. That was their center point. That was their purpose for existence. He also had philosophical groups that would rally around theologizing, philosophizing. You see that in Acts 17. When people are on Marsh Hill, and it says all they're doing all day long is what? 
talking about new ideas. It's people who have money, people who don't have to work for a living. 98% of the population in Rome had to work for a living. They didn't. And they talked all day. That's it. They were the socialites. They were the influencers of the day. And so they gathered together on this hill in Greece and talked. And so Paul shows up, and we know Acts 17 becomes a very important chapter for evangelism. But these were the philosophers, and so they had their own little groups and associations. And then the emperor started a group of athletes. He wanted to recruit young teenagers, 14 to 17-year-olds, and he wanted them to be fit. He wanted them to be future soldiers. And so he created a club of athletes. And so they would be trained and they would go to the imperial palace. And in order to be a part of it, you had to be born into a senatorial family. So you had to be the best of the best, the elite clubs. But they would do this. They would participate in festivals and they would have military exercises in the various games. And finally, you had another option called the household group. The household group. The reason that this is important is because the household was the fundamental unit in the Roman society. This is the most basic social construct in that world. And when you read the New Testament, what you repeatedly find is terms like brother, sister. Have you ever been called, hey brother, let me pray for you. Hey sister, how are you doing? Have you? In the Christian context. You guys are embarrassed to admit it. Yes, it happens. It happens here. Somebody called me that today, earlier today. It happens. We get that language from the New Testament. Father, mother. All these familial terms find themselves in the New Testament, but they find themselves from this actual collegia, this association that existed as a formal unit in the Roman world, the household unit. And typically you would have the father is the head of that unit. He would be given authority, and the term was called pater familias, which means that he's the head. He has all authority. He has all power. In other words, on paper, he could do whatever he wanted to with the people that belonged to his household. The slaves, the freedmen, his wife, his kids, all the properties that he had, all the friends that he would have. He had full authority on paper. In practice, they were Businessmen, they understood that if they killed a slave, there would be less business. And so they didn't do that that much. It doesn't mean that they did not abuse the people that lived with them and worked for them. But it does mean that there was this understanding that he was in charge. Well, when you open up the New Testament and you talk about God, he's called the Father, our Father. Think about John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. John 1 12 and 13. This is talking about Jesus as the Logos, the word from God, who came into this world. He came into Israel, it says in verse 11, but he was rejected by his own, the Jewish people. But in verse 12, it says, but as many as received him, those who actually believed in him, he gave to them the right to become children of God. So now they've been integrated into the family of God. Those who believe in his name. These were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the Gospel of John, God is called Father 120 times. That's a a major theme in that Gospel, but that happens all over the New Testament. Because the fatherhood idea is connected to this household association, but it 
first beyond that small unit. It goes into the Old Testament. God is the father of all. But then Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is our sibling. And then Hebrews 11.16, it says God isn't ashamed to be called your father. In the context of a call to faithfulness and holiness, God says, I'm not ashamed. Even though I know that they're not perfect. That's why Paul calls himself, I acted like a father to you. Like a mother, caring for you, teaching you, confronting you when necessary. So generally speaking, these little groups, household groups, would meet at homes, primarily. And it's done for privacy, for intimacy, for stability, for convenience, low cost, for protection. And so the Christians began to form house churches. And so you begin to meet all these house churches in the New Testament. In Rome, Romans 16 talks about this. Priscilla and Aquila opened up their home in Rome, then in Corinth, then in Ephesus, and then they went back to Rome. Wherever they were, they said, our house is going to be used for the gathering of the church. And it doesn't matter where they migrated to in the Roman Empire. They consistently lived according to that decision. And that's how Paul met them in his ministry as well. You have house churches in Laodicea. The woman, a woman named Nipha was the patroness of this house church. In Colossae, Philemon opened his house for the church in Colossae. And then you stumble upon statements like, he believed and the whole household. She believed and the whole household. The idea is that the whole household was being evangelized and everybody hearing the gospel and God's providence and sovereign election got saved. And then people were being baptized, sometimes entire households. That's where these terms and ideas come from in early Christianity. In other words, Christians did not just come in and say, we're going to deny everything in this world. It's as if it doesn't exist. We're not of this world. And we're going to create a new language, a new system, a new organization. They did not do that. They adopted the culture in which they lived and they repurposed it for themselves as they created a new community and a new fellowship. They certainly rejected the sins and the gods and the, the, the pluralistic environment of their day. But the actual terminology and the structures that existed around them, they adopted in order to meet, to fellowship, to evangelize, and to take the gospel from Jerusalem to the farthest point of the Roman Empire. That's what it meant to be in a socio-economically diverse environment. You had the rich and you had the poor, and the rich served the poor, and the poor served the rich. And it was a community of equals. And I hope you are immediately applying those principles. I don't think I have to say much about what that means for us. That if God blessed you, your primary reason for being blessed by God is to advance the kingdom with those funds and to serve the people in the community of the church. That's why God is blessing you. And that's how we imitate the early Christians as we have opportunities to do so. Well, they were ethnically diverse, they were socioeconomically diverse, and they were also diverse in regards to gender. Here's what I mean. Not gender dysphoria, not gender fluidity. Do not misunderstand me. It means, as I said a little bit ago, that they welcomed men and women. Unlike the other groups I just talked about. You see, there were 
those groups were gender specific. Christians come along and say, there is no Jew or Greek, barbarian or Scythian, male or female. In other words, we're not going to prefer one group over another. There is equality before the cross. There's a scholar named Michael Kruger that was really helpful in trying to understand the role of women in the early church. He actually studied 10 years before I studied in Scotland with the same professor that I studied with 10 years prior. So he's a good Christian scholar. If you want to read more about early Christianity, I would encourage you to look up his books, his blog. He has a blog called Canon Fodder, F-O-D-D-E-R. And he's got multiple books on early Christianity. His name is Michael Kruger. And he writes about women in the early church. And one sociologist says and estimates that two-thirds of the Christian community in the second century was made up of women. So yes, the majority. Whereas in the greater Roman world, women made up a third of the population. So there is an imbalance in that regard. Women were drawn to Christianity. And the question is, why? Remember what I said from the very beginning? Your religion was attached to your family. It was attached to your ethnicity. And when you understand the Roman world, the Jewish world, the Greek world, women, unfortunately, weren't valued. They weren't prized, generally speaking. They were abused. They weren't always considered to be the smartest or even given a voice to vote or to go to court as a witness. You see that in documents that you read in the ancient world. And so what made the women switch gods? And basically say, I'm not going to worship Artemis anymore. I'm not going to worship Zeus anymore. I'm not going to worship Athena anymore. And the implications that came with that, you just start reading the martyr stories of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. And how many women were executed for becoming Christians. You see, Christianity, in that point, as we kind of talked a little bit about, Christianity was a cultural pariah. People were afraid of Christians for various reasons. They didn't understand them, and so they were afraid of them. And so it was an outsider movement, legally, socially, religiously, politically. They were despised. They they were scorned. People were suspicious of them. They were seen as a threat, and yet women appeared to be drawn to this new Christian, to this new religious movement. Why? Well, let's, let's look at it from this point of view. When pagan writers, Romans, wrote against Christianity, this is how they decided to insult Christians. They began to write against Christians by mocking them as the religion of women. Now, that gives you an insight into what value they assign to women, these elite, educated individuals in the Roman world. They said, oh, you're just a part of this religion of women. In other words, in the ancient world, Christianity was mocked for being too pro-women. The first Christians created this climate that welcomed anybody who came in, even women. And so this is what happened. You have somebody named Celsus, a critic of Christianity, and this is what he writes. Christians show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, 
dishonorable and stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. That's his criticism against Christianity. It's a foolish religion. Look at who's falling for it. The kids, the women, the slaves, the stupid, dishonorable, foolish people. Lucian, a very virulent critic of Christianity, says this. Christianity appealed to widows and orphan children who were so gullible that they would visit people in prison and help them. In the 3rd century, early 3rd century, you have a writer, Minicius Felix, who writes about Christianity, and this is what he says. Christianity consists of the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their own sex. So again, an insult against the women. Please get this. The writers are the most elite, the most educated, the most enlightened people of the Greco-Roman world. And this is what they think of women. And in order to insult Christianity, they'll just blast the women that are part of the movement. And then listen to what the Christians wrote about women. In Acts 5.14, as thousands are coming to Christ, it says, All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Luke, who was an elitist, who was an educated individual, who had a great career, and he wasn't Jewish, did not share the view of the pagan Romans about women. He said, I'm going to talk about the women that are joining the movement. Acts 8.12. When they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. When the persecution came in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, it says this, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He put them into prison. Acts 9.2. Paul asked for letters from Uh, from the high priest to go to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anybody belonging to the way, both men and women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 22 verse 4, Paul says about himself, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prison. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9 5, defending his own apostleship, says this, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. What we learn from that little verse in passing is that Jesus' half-siblings were married. Peter was married. Paul was not. And Barnabas was not. That's the context of the story. But they were bringing them along. In other words, their wives were ministry partners with them. They were serving the Lord together. They didn't lock them up at home and go preach. They saw them as equals in the community of the saints. They weren't embarrassed that Christian women joined the church. Unlike the Greco-Roman world. Now today you'll often hear criticism of Christianity. Even today of the church. And how anti-women Christians are from the very beginning. But if you actually contextualize Christianity in the first century. You realize they were extremely the opposite. They were pro-women. To such a degree that they were being mocked for being too pro-women. And of course, we already talked about Achille and Priscilla. 
influencers, for sure, in the first century. Remember who they mentored? Apollos. Remember Apollos in Acts 18? He was a very, very eloquent, intellectual preacher. But he didn't get everything right. And so they pulled him aside at one of these gatherings. And they said, let us help you a little bit theologically. And he listened. And he became even greater as a preacher. Nepha, that I mentioned earlier in Colossians 4.15, hosted a house church. Yudia and Syntyche. Now, we know them because of their mistake of bickering and fighting. And, you know, Philippians 4, unfortunately, canonizes them forever. As those that fought and couldn't get along. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going to ask for more help here. All of you in the church of Philippi, please let these, help these women get along. But this is how he describes them. Fellow workers, these women, and co-sufferers for the gospel. Yes, for whatever reason, they couldn't get along. But they were fellow workers who actually suffered alongside Paul. And Paul recognizes them. Phoebe. Phoebe is mentioned in Romans 16. She's called a sister, a deaconess, and a patroness. You don't get this title patroness or patron unless you've got a lot of money and you're using that money for the good of the church in this context. And that's all we know about Phoebe. Two brief verses. But she was a significant player in the church in Rome. Most likely she was the hostess. Some scholars actually think that she probably carried the letter from Paul, Corinth, to Rome, to the church in Rome. There's not enough evidence for that, but some do think that. Guys, we have examples of slave women who were deaconesses in the church. In other words, the elders, the pastors, the apostles of the church did not discriminate based on your social status. Yes, you were a slave. Guess what? In the church, there is no slave or free man. There is social equality. And they were even executed. I'll talk about this letter from the early 100s AD next time. How they were executed. Early Christian women studied doctrine. They studied theology. They served in the church. And this is one way to summarize this. Women, who were the first Christians, had a full involvement in the life of the church. With the exception of not speaking as individuals in the public assemblies. That's it. They weren't pastors, preachers, or elders. That's the only exception. And we get that from the New Testament. We know that from 1 Timothy 2, from 1 Corinthians 14. But otherwise, women were respected. They were influential. They were serving the body of Christ in order to advance the kingdom. You guys, there's nothing in Jewish literature, nothing in Greco-Roman literature, that elevates women to such a degree in a religious environment. So as you think about the men and women in our ministry, in our church, in the modern church, you need to think about the early Christians and how they thought about each other, men and women, and how they did not discriminate in regards to serving one another and having friendships and having the opportunity to fellowship with one another because they understood before the cross there is ontological equality. That God doesn't discriminate. And so he gives opportunities to all of us. 
Paul calls women in his ministry chosen fellow workers, tested and proven servants of the Lord, dear friends in the partnership for the gospel. And I close with a story from Jerome. Jerome translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, the very first Latin Bible. The reason that matters is because the Romans in the Roman Empire spoke Latin. And he's considered to be the most learned of all the Latin church fathers. He wrote a lot of books, a lot of commentaries, a lot of letters. And the one that's most famous is the Bible in Latin. And so he writes about a woman named Marcella, a Roman noblewoman. She was a student of the Bible. She hosted a Bible study in her house. And this is what he says about her. I shall not set forth her illustrious family, the glory of her ancestors, and her descent through consuls and praetorian prefects. All that means is that I'm not going to spend time talking about her pedigree. The fact that she comes from the elite family, the fact that she has money, the fact that she has an amazingly renowned family. And consuls and praetorian prefects, those were the most, uh, the highest ranking government positions in the Roman Empire. That's her family. I shall praise nothing in her except what is her own and the nobler. Because despising riches and rank, she has become the nobler by poverty and humility. She was left an orphan by the death of her father. And seven months after her marriage, she was deprived of her husband. Her zeal for the divine scriptures was unparalleled. Her fasts were moderate. She never met with me without asking some question concerning the scriptures. Nor would she at once acquiesce, but she would put forward questions to the contrary. She was a feisty one. Not to be contentious, but so that by questioning, she may learn answers to the objections that she perceived could be raised. What virtue? What intelligence, what holiness, what purity I found in her. This is one example of a Christian woman who, upon becoming a widow, a young widow, and an orphan before that, she spent time studying the Bible and learning the Bible in order to teach the Bible and to host a family a Bible study in her house. And so she's meeting with Jerome, one of the most renowned leaders of the church. You guys, this is encur- I hope this encourages all of you, but especially women. You have examples from church history who went deep into the Bible, into theology, into the scriptures to try to understand what it means and how I live accordingly. You have other famous pastors, Gregor of Nazianus, Gregor of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, writing about women like Nona, Anthusa, Macrina, Thecla, Maximilla, Emphidema, Euclia, and others. These are all women who were extremely influential in the first few centuries of Christianity. And you can just look up those names and you can get their full story elsewhere. But make sure you get this. As you think about the first Christians, they entered into a world that was hostile to women. A world that did not value women. And they said, that's not how God created women. Everybody is made in the image of God. And so they elevated the position of women, not on paper only, but in practice. And they were used by God to advance the kingdom of God. Those who had means used their money to do that. Those who had other ways, whether it's a house or an opportunity to serve people and visit them in prison, 
they would do so because they believed that God was using all people, rich and poor, men and women, slave and free, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Those were the first Christians. Next time, I want to talk about what did they believe that made people actually want to join them. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to look briefly at the lives of the first Christians. We know that your word is infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's preserved for us so that we would use it to shape our thinking about the church and about each other. I do pray that all of us here would understand what the early Christians did to translate the Bible, to protect, preserve, and pass it on for us. So many died getting the Bible into multiple languages and ultimately into the English and into our generation. Help us to value those Christians who preceded us, those Christians who suffered and died and became martyrs because they would not recant. And as we think about our own lives, I ask that all of us would reflect on our commitment to Jesus Christ and to the church. We would reflect on our commitment to serving in the church, to serving one another. That when we get together, we should live out Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, encouraging one another toward love and good deeds. That is fellowship. Helping one another identify and apply spiritual gifts that you have given us. I pray that this Bible study would have a reputation of service, a reputation of humility, a reputation that accepts everybody. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what ethnicity you are, what socioeconomic status you are. We love one another, we serve one another to the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord God, use our Bible study to change this community, but also the people that we interact with on a weekly basis. So that ultimately you are glorified because of our faithfulness. And those who may not know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. Those who haven't submitted their lives to you as King and Lord of their lives. I ask that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives. That he would help them understand that Jesus Christ died for every single sinner. No matter how many sins they've committed or how grievous the sins that they would look to you as the only Savior, fall down and beg you for forgiveness. And the promise is extended to all. You will forgive and you will welcome every single person who asks forgiveness into your family. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for setting up Jesus Christ as our older sibling who preceded us and who walked the life of faith so we can imitate and ultimately worship Him. We pray this to the glory of of our Savior. Amen.